We're going to try and conclude today, and our title is The Ultimate Family Reunion. And as you see from the slide in front of you, what cozier thing could we talk about at Christmas than the Vietnam War? I tell you, this war was one that was highly contested and debated. Why are we here? There was an unclear objective. How long are we going to stay? Spanned over three presidents, from Kennedy to Johnson, then to Nixon. People started to really lose heart and be frustrated, some angry about our role over there. Estimated that we lost over 58,000 American lives in Vietnam. 75,000 were severely disabled. Of those killed, 61% were younger than 21 years old. These were our young men primarily. And in the fighting, many found themselves as prisoners of war. All right, prisoners of war. Their, Their circumstances varied. Many, if not most of them, experienced some form of malnutrition, some in very abusive ways. Uh, Then there was more physical abuse and torture. And as year after year would go by, they would be left to wonder, what is my future? Will I get home? Will it be this next year or the following year? Or will I never get out of here alive? What must it have been like to be one of those individuals? Well, a break came. Uh, As a result of diplomatic negotiations, the first of 591 U.S. prisoners of war began to be uh, repatriated. So here we have the newly freed prisoners of war celebrating as their C-141A aircraft lifted off from Hanoi, North Vietnam, on February 12, 1973. And they're pretty excited. Finally, they land at Clark Air Base in the Philippines under what was dubbed Operation Homecoming. The highest ranking soldier on board that first flight was a 48-year-old naval captain, Jeremiah Denton, a prisoner for nearly eight years. And he stood before the microphone and with quivering voice, he said, we are honored to have had the opportunity to serve our country under difficult circumstances. We are profoundly grateful to our commander and chief and to our nation for this day. Then after a brief pause to gain his composure, he finally said, God bless America. And then he and others who had been flown to freedom fell into the arms of waiting families and words failed to convey the emotion of such scenes. We have various Pictures here, Eugene, known as Red McDaniel, greets his wife and daughter upon arrival at Clark Air Base. Can you imagine family members who had lived on memories and spent literally years in the throes of concern? Not a day passing without their hearts returning to one another. Will Daddy be home for Christmas this year? This is Air Force Captain John O. Davies after spending nearly six years in captivity in northern Vietnam. This is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Sturm when he's reunited with his family after six years. And I love this picture. It just captures the excitement of the moment, the reunion, if you will, when they first see one another and the joy, the elation, the love, the the tears, the emotion 
is captured there in that picture. And it was big news. Just about every newspaper was talking about the 143 POWs back under our flag or returned to freedom or released. Yes, reunions are a big deal. Now, last time we looked at an incredible reunion, didn't we? We looked at when Joseph revealed himself as Joseph to his brothers. And again, we have tears flowing. We have dismay. We have shock. We have fear. We have all kinds of emotions coming forward. Yet Joseph is gracious enough to say, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good, to preserve a remnant, if you will, a a group of people, his people through this time of calamity. What graciousness on the part of Joseph. But the story isn't done. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me again to the book of Genesis, chapter 45. And we're not looking at near as many verses. I know last time we we had a marathon of verses. But this time it's much shorter. But we pick up the story now in Genesis, chapter 45, verse 25. Then they, the brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. No doubt, as they are passing, remember, with all the supplies, with all the wagons, with all the camels, with all the donkeys and and the goods of the best of Egypt and so on, they have this caravan. They have walked back and forth this pilgrimage a couple of times now before, they know the walk well, but this time they're not walking. Unless, of course, they want to. This time they're riding in style. Wagons? Yes, wagons. And no doubt they're probably passing people along the way that are starving, animals that have not made it. But they themselves are loaded to the gills with provisions. Perhaps they shared some along the way. I mean, the reality is these brothers had found a fortune in Egypt. We already mentioned them, camels, donkeys, wagons, clothes, money, provisions, everything they could possibly imagine. But more than that, they found their lost brother. And better still, this long lost brother had turned out to be the savior, if you will, for the families. Of Jacob. And best of all, he had reconciled with them. He had forgiven them. And under the weight which these, uh, their consciences had grown for decades, this weight was finally lifted. Well, mostly lifted. They still had another conversation that needed to take place. They had to make it right with their father. Jacob. There'd be many questions. How did Joseph get there? They'd have to tell their dad about the pit and the sale into slavery, his pleadings and the dipping of his coat in blood. Not to mention the deception, the big lie. But it couldn't be hidden any longer. But you know what? It was going to be okay. Joseph had forgiven them. And hopefully, Jacob would too. And I imagine as they drew close to home, 
Jacob himself, his own heart beat just a little bit faster. Is Benjamin with them? How about Simeon? Was all well? And he waited their arrival with growing impatience. And finally, they crowded into his presence and bursting with amazing news. Verse 26, and they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he didn't believe them. Would you believe them? I mean, he's stunned. He's overwhelmed. So much so, he, he says, this can't be true. This is not possible. Were his sons being fanatical? I mean, here they are, all chiming in. Yes, sure enough, Benjamin, you're here. And Benjamin probably stepped forward. He probably greeted his father lovingly. And then he too begins babbling about Joseph. Were all his sons beside themselves? Simeon, you're here. Please speak some truth to this situation. And he too begins chatting about Joseph. I mean, this is a mean trick. He had mourned the death of his beloved son for 22 years. And this was disturbing. I imagine at a point they sense this old man's bewilderment. And I imagine one of the sons coming along saying, Father, come outside and see. And so he hobbles to the door and he looks out and he sees this long line of wagons equipped only as royalty and the very wealthy could possess not to mention the camels and the donkeys loaded with goods from Egypt. I imagine his head shook in disbelief. And then at some point, he must have said, I can believe it now. This is like Joseph. I must go see him. Tell me, what did he say? And I imagine they began to recount firsthand. Well, he said to tell you that he is second in all the land, that all the wealth of the greatest nation on earth, it's all at his disposal, dad. They told him of the dungeon and the dream and the promotion, the years of plenty in the storehouses. And of course, they had to share too how he got there even in the first place. What happened? I still have his coat. It's under here, under this, under this trunk somewhere. And they explained, and they apologized, and they said, we're sorry. And I imagine Jacob said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And as he continued to ask, what did he say? I imagine they said exactly what Joseph told him to say. Going back to chapter 45, verse 9, says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him. Do you think they forgot these words? No way. Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Who did this? God did this. Tell them that God did this. And come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. I imagine they went on. God sent me here to preserve life, he told us. 
And so verse 27, but when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts, the wagons, the entourage, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father was revived. Oh yeah. Joseph also said, don't worry about your stuff. For the best of Egypt awaits us, Dad. Really? He said that? Yeah, Dad, he did. I heard it too. He said, don't worry about your stuff. Just come. He's given us the Goshen, uh, Goshen Delta. It's well watered. It's most fertile. Uh, in all of Egypt, he's going to give it to us. That's where we're going to stay and reside. Now, here's a map, if you will. I've zoomed out quite a bit. Uh, the left side of that V there, that's the Gulf of Suez. Some of you may have been able to go to the Suez Canal. Um, the Red Sea is below that. You have Egypt there on the left-hand side. And on the right, you have Israel and, and Jordan's off there, off to the side as well. But you can see very clearly that Egypt is not next door. In fact, if we zoom in a little bit closer, Hebron to Beersheba to eventually Averis, which is Egypt... The estimate that I was able to come up with, it's about 130 miles, similar to a walking journey of going from here to Knoxville. Now, it doesn't take long in your wagon today, but if you do that by foot, it's a little bit longer, not to mention with women and children and livestock and belongings. And this is asking a lot of a man that's 130 years old. Not to mention, God told him that he would give him this land, Canaan, for an everlasting possession. What business did he have to go to Egypt? And I imagine time and time again, he might have had to say, let's take another look at those wagons. What are these again? They're camels, Dad. Royal camels. And these over here? Donkeys, loaded down with the best of Egypt. Dad, did you look inside the wagons? See the comfort of those? You're not going to have to walk. You're going to ride in comfort. See all those pillows? It's the best that money can buy. But I imagine Jacob was still troubled. Because Joseph had spoken. Pharaoh had spoken. His sons had spoken. And they were all united in the message. Go down to Egypt. This is what you need to do. But God had not spoken. So in Genesis chapter 46, verse 1, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, Beersheba, if you have good eyes, you see it there on the map. It's close to the southern border of Canaan. So before proceeding any further, he built an altar there and offered sacrifice to the Lord. And we could say he inquired of the Lord, God, are you in this? You made a promise to your people, to us in the land of Canaan. And now I'm being summoned someplace else. And before I leave this land, I have to know, God, are you in this? It's a big question to ask when making a big 
life-altering decision, isn't it? I mean, everything else will be affected by this decision, by this move. This individual has spoken. This corporate executive has said their two cents. We've called this person and that person, but at the end of the day, God, are you in this? Are you calling me to go? Now, some of you have been unnerving about me talking about this. I have no call. I'm not contemplating anything. You're stuck, okay? But here Jacob inquires of the Lord. It's an important piece, isn't it? I remember when, actually I don't remember, it was just retold to me relatively recently in my adult years. I was born in Fresno, California. Maybe not the ideal place that I would choose at this point in my life to grow up, but that's where I was born. That's where I spent the first five years of my life. But then dad got a call to come out to Southern Adventist University and be an associate pastor of the Collegedale Church. He dismissed the call. He said, I'm not interested. And so they said, okay, yeah, take me off the list. They called again, uh, they being Gordon Beats. I really want you to consider coming out here to Southern Adventist. I want you to at least look at everything. No, I'm not interested. All of our families out here on the West Coast, which was true. Both grandparents were, one was in Oregon, one was in Northern California. And, you know, we just, we prefer to stay here. Thank you anyway. And he thought that he had put him off. Finally, some weeks go by, a third time around. We really want you to consider this. He says, at least come and fly out here and take a look at the campus. I think you'll be very impressed with what we have to offer out here. And he says, I really don't want to go out there because I'll give you the impression that I'm interested. And I'm not interested, he said. And Gordon said this. He said, I'll tell you what, Ed. You come out here, you look it all over, and then if you tell me no, I'll leave you alone. He said, fine. So he flew out. And as I thought, my perception as a little kid was that he saw Collegedale and all the beauty of the promised land, and he said, let's move, kids. That's not how it went. He gets out there to this Avenus ghetto, and he says, this is ridiculous. They have their own uh, grocery store. They have their own bank that's run by Avenus. They have their own Avenus barbers and their Avenus everything, 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 doctors and dentists. It's just this little conclave. He says, we're not interested at all in this. And, and so he was content in the fact he was going to go back to Fresno and everything was going to be fine. In the meantime, my mom is back home praying and dad is there in Thatcher South. Some of you have spent some time living in Thatcher South and he's laying there in a bed getting ready to go home and he wakes up in the middle of the night with this very strong impression, almost a voice that said, you're not considering this. And he remembers sitting up in bed and he said, really? Really? And he went back to sleep. But he woke up the next morning kind of shaken. I'm not considering this. I'm not giving this a fair look. That changed his perspective significantly. Still roaming around campus a little bit, seeing this, seeing that, having a few other conversations. Flies back home to California. Okay, Marilyn, time to have this talk. For whatever reason, those talks always happen at the bed for them, sitting on the bed. Marilyn, you go first, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay. Well, 
I've been praying about it while you've been gone. And I hadn't communicated while they were gone. And she says, and I can't explain it, but I feel like God's calling us to go. And that's, that's really weird. Because let me tell you what happened, and he explained the story, and we came. A lot has been impacted by that one singular decision where he went to school, who we met, who we married, and probably a host of other things as well. Friends, when you're in the midst of a big situation, a big decision, inquire with whomever you'd like, but make sure you inquire of the Lord. And the thing that I like about that story is that even though his perception was taking him this way, God, because he was praying about it, I believe, was able to knock on his door and said, you're not considering this, hello, and opened his, his mind to new possibilities. And so that's what we see Jacob here doing. I wasn't going to share that, but I threw it in for free. Patriarchs and Prophets 2.32 says, With gladness of heart they pursued their journey, and when they came to Beersheba, the patriot offered grateful sacrifices, entreated the Lord to grant them an assurance that he would go with them. God, are you in this? And so we keep reading. We pick up in verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Verse 3. And so he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Basically, you will die in Joseph's presence. He will lay you to rest. Yes, God was in this. Everything now was okay. But you still may be asking, why Egypt? Well, if we read on ahead in this story, which I'm sure you've done before, It's not God's plan for them to settle right there in the heart of the city among the heathen culture and the heathen people to intermarry. That's not his plan because the text tells us later at the very end of this chapter that the Egyptians despise shepherds and Joseph specifically instructs them to tell Pharaoh that they're all shepherds and to ask for the land of Goshen. There they could be kept separate in proximity as well as distinct from the cultural norms of Egypt and the intermingling and intermarrying and and so on. And so the plan that God had was for them to be, yes, in Egypt, but to be separate and removed, country living as shepherds. In Egypt, God promises to make them, right here in the verses we just read, God promises to make them a great nation. Abraham was promised that his descendants would be like the stars, you remember, like the sand of the sea. But so far, that wasn't evident. What follows these verses very quickly is a whole list of the individuals that are there, and it tells us the total number is only 70. But it's while they're in Egypt that the estimate shoots up to a million to maybe three million. Yes, God had a plan. And so we keep reading verse 5, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob Their little ones and their wives and the carts with Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt. 
Jacob and all his descendants whoops, with him, his sons and his sons, sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And then we skip over some of the genealogy portions and we find ourselves in verse 28. And I imagine as they draw near, like any road trip, if you will, I imagine Jacob starts to become anxious. He wants to see his boy. And so we pick up in verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And so Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen. And when Joseph learned of his father's nearness, his heart leapt within him. These two had not seen each other for 22 years. The last time they saw each other, Joseph was only 17 years old, leaving camp to go visit his brothers. And he waved cheerfully to his father as he was going to be right back. But that was the last memory they had of each other for 22 years. Now Joseph was 39, and the executive head of all Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. But this, this would be one of the greatest moments of his life. He was going to take hold of his father once more and embrace and cherish him the rest of his life. And so I imagine when Joseph saw and caught sight of that long line of wagons in the distance, his eagerness knew no bounds. And he ordered his charioteer to greater speed, faster, faster, he pushed them. His eagerness was now no longer under control. And I imagine Joseph dashed up to the wagon in the lead, which had stopped, and from which a feeble old man was climbing down. And the verse says, in in verse 29... It says, to meet his father Israel, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Emotions overcame them. Words were too feeble to express the feelings that swept over them at that moment. And they just fell into each other's arms and remained there. And the scripture says, for a long while. And I imagine there wasn't a dry eye anywhere. Years had changed them both. As Joseph felt the bones in his father's back. But their love for each other remained unchanged. I imagine it was the love of not only his heavenly father, but his earthly father that kept Joseph going. Then I imagine finally Jacob gently disengaging himself pushing his believed Joseph just far, beloved Joseph, just far enough to look at him from head to toe and to feast his eyes on his boy. And what does he say, verse 30? And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you're still alive. It wasn't that long ago that Jacob was moaning and bemoaning. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now they want Benjamin. Everything is against me. You remember that? But that wasn't God's plan. Benjamin was back. Simeon was back. And now Joseph was back. And they'd spend the next 17 years together. 
before Jacob is finally laid to rest. No, everything was not against him. All had been restored. And this moving family reunion. And the beautiful story continues, but I'll let you finish it on your own. But this beautiful reunion reminds me of other reunions we find in Scripture. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we read of a national reunion. The nation had been in captivity for 70 years. Finally, this king says, you can go back to your land, and they find Jerusalem destroyed. So the people start to rebuild the wall as well as the place of worship. And then they gather in the city square to hear the word of God read for the first time in decades. We kind of take that for granted, don't we? And then we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. And he read from it in the open square from morning until midday. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. When they heard the word of God in their own ears for the first time for many of them. Others, for decades, they lifted up their hands and praised and wept aloud. These were like POWs, not just for years, but for decades. This is a national reunion, and it must have been something to behold. I think of another reunion in Scripture. This is a very personal reunion. Remember the prodigal son who basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want all my money now. Give it to me so I can get on with my life. And the father gave it without arguing, but he comes to a dead end. And he realizes that everything he's been looking for is back home. And so he comes with his speech prepared. And he heads for home to beg his father to let him come back as a hired hand. But his father sees him afar off and runs to meet him. And again, we have an embrace, and he kisses him repeatedly. He doesn't even get to finish his speech. This idea of coming back on as a hired hand, no, I'm going to restate you as my son. That's a personal, powerful reunion. David Redding remembers going home from the Navy for the first time after World War II. He likes to say, I live so far out, when we went hunting, we had to go towards town. They raised cattle and horses and sheep. And David had a beautiful ram, and the the neighbor, or the closest neighbor, he wanted to borrow that ram so that he himself could build his small flock, and in exchange, his dog was going to have puppies, you'll get the pick of the litter. And so that's exactly what happened. He got this black Scottish terrier, sorry, shepherd, I should say, that's anything but a terrier, and he named it Teddy. In his own words, he says it this way, Teddy was my dog. He would do anything for me. He waited for me to come home from school. He slept beside me. And when I whistled, he ran to me, even if he was in the middle of his supper. At night, no one could come within half a mile of the house without Teddy's permission. And during those long summers in the field, I would only see the family at night. But Teddy, now he was with me all day long. But then I was called away to serve in the Navy in World War II. 
How do you explain to someone who loves you that you are leaving him and you won't be back and you don't know when you'll be back? How do you explain to your dog that you're not going to be chasing woodchucks with him tomorrow, like always? So coming home from the Navy that first time, he says, it was a little scary for me. The last bus stop was 14 miles away from the farm. I got off that night, about 11 at night. Nobody knew I was there. And I walked the rest of the way home. It was 2 or 3 in the morning before I was within half a mile of the house. It was pitch dark, but I knew every step of the way. But suddenly, Teddy heard me and began his warning bark. Then in the black of night, I whistled only once, and the barking stopped. There was a yelp of recognition, and I knew that a big black form was hurtling toward me in the darkness. Almost immediately, he was there in my arms. And to this day, that is the best way I can explain what it means to come home. He goes on to write, if my dog, without any explanation, would love me and take me back after all that time, wouldn't my God? This brings us to another kind of reunion we find in Scripture. The final ultimate family reunion. It's the hope every child of God. And Aiden did a great job reading it. He may have to do it again. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For, those, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will no, no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Does that bring you comfort this morning? What a moment that will be when all God's people join together in the presence of the living Christ. There are no words sufficient to describe it. When the angels come down and the trumpets sound and Jesus is seen surrounded by heavenly angels and when those that have been taken from us are returned from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, old and young, from around the world as they welcome Jesus, their loving Savior. What a day of rejoicing that will be. I like this picture, too. Here the kids are running off into the distance to the new Jerusalem. Little girls picking flowers, much like my girls do in the summer. And here's a little boy getting out of his wheelchair. He's going to run, too. Friends, Jesus is coming. And it's going to be the ultimate family reunion. And on that great getting up morning, it's my prayer that your entire family will be there. Oh, pastor, you don't know my family. There's a lot of dysfunction in my family. If that's how you feel, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Trust in the sovereignty of God, who can use the bad and even the evil to accomplish his greater good. 
Look at this story of Joseph's family. Talk about bad men, bad motives, jealousy, hatred, malice, slavery, deception, atrocious lies, imprisonment, neglect, cruel forgetfulness, dreams, royalty, national prosperity, national calamity. But all these things work together at the right time to fulfill God's purposes. And the brothers themselves were changed. And through the hardship of Joseph, the family, God's remnant, were saved. They meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. So don't give up. Don't stop praying. All these things are under his control. He alone knows how to make them all combine to accomplish his will. How does the text go? All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Question is simple. Do you love God this morning? Do you long to fulfill his purposes in your life? Do you have the assurance that he loves you? That he gave all, and I mean all, to redeem you? Do you believe in the simple reality that by faith you can accept his gift, the best Christmas gift there is of all, the gift of his son Jesus? And if you don't have that assurance, I invite you to accept him today. Accept Jesus and his gift today. Trust his plan for your life because in so doing you'll have hope. In the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your fear and heartache, you can have hope. We call it the blessed hope. And the second coming, the soon return of Jesus. That's a reunion I certainly want to be part of, don't you? Dear Heavenly Father, we have seen and been reminded of some beautiful reunions this morning. But there is no reunion as incredible or as significant as the one that's coming. Lord, we want to be found in that number when you come. So regardless of whatever is in our life, uh, whatever challenges we face, may we remember this story of Joseph and be encouraged that as long as you are with us, as long as we are seeking to fulfill your plan, it's all going to work out. We trust you again with our life today. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.